When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. The Hartford understands protecting your business with the proper insurance can be a challenge. The Hartford team can provide coverage to suit your industry. The Hartford empowers mid- to large-size companies like yours to help manage risk, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. Let the Hartford help protect what's unique about your business. Learn how at thehartford.com. Live from our nation's capital, this is Bloomberg Sound On. Middle-income families need help. Uh, we're coming out of COVID-19. We want to keep our economy strong. When you have an infrastructure bill, there's spin-off from that. There's spin-off in cities and towns all across America. Bloomberg Sound On. Politics, policy, and perspective from D.C.'s top names. We need to incentivize the manufacturing of chips in America. I do believe the vaccine is safe and effective. But I think what government's role is is to share the science, share the facts share the benefits. Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. Thanks for joining us as we join you live from the nation's capital, which is looking a little bit like Detroit today. Cars parked on the South Lawn as the White House invests in electric vehicles made by the big three, if I can still call them that. Are they still? Well, Ford, GM, Chrysler, and it's parent company it doesn't sound as good a goal set by the administration half of all cars sold in the u.s to be electric vehicles by the year 2030 we'll talk about it with someone who was there today with joe biden that would be congressman dan kildee democrat from michigan and we'll bring it to the panel bloomberg politics contributors Jeannie she and zeno and rick davis are with us today and later we'll update the winding road of infrastructure as the senate's august recess looms we have a score on the bill thank you for joining us this thursday as the White House gets charged up about EVs. I'm signing an executive order setting out a target of 50% of all passenger vehicles sold by 2030 will be electric and set into motion an all-out effort. President Biden a short time ago on the South Lawn, where he was backed by a couple of electric vehicles, including a Jeep. He actually took it for a spin around the driveway, no donuts. As the big three CEOs looked on, I'm going with big three for the sake of this hour, forgive me, along with... The United Auto Workers, who were there, too, and joining us to talk about the impact of the president's policy on business is Congressman Dan Kildee, a Democrat from Michigan, who is there for the event today. Congressman, welcome. It's good to have you. How important is this administration goal uh, when these companies were already on a path to go all electric in the coming years? Does this advance that timeline? I think it does. And I think what it also does, it, it helps us policymakers have a target that we can aim for when we're enacting policy intended to get us there. What the president laid out was the target, and I think it's the right one. What we have to do is respond with a a series of investment credits and incentives to get us there so that the American worker, the American manufacturer, can actually be the beneficiary of the transition to electrification. It's going to happen. The question is, are we going to be consumers of foreign-produced electric vehicles, or are we going to make them here? And that's why we need to act to make sure that we accelerate 
the target, you know, and then I think the president set it out for us. And it will be faster than what would happen if it were just left to the, and I call them the big three, too, as well, by the way. <laughs> but we're just left to the big three. Yeah. Uh, I'll tell you what, if you're on a speakerphone, Congressman, I'd love for you to pick up the handset if it's possible, or just because I have a couple of questions uh, to really dig into this with you. We need more charging infrastructure is one thing we've been hearing a lot before we can convert the whole country to electric. Is there enough money set aside in the infrastructure plan for that, or does the White House have bigger plans when it comes to the chargers that we're going to need to run these cars? Well, I do think we need more charging investment than what we see in the Senate bipartisan infrastructure plan. It's a step in the right direction. Don't get me wrong. It's seven and a half billion dollars, but it's about half of what we think we need to make sure that as people purchase those vehicles, we reduce the anxiety they have about being able to get where they want to go without being able to charge. So what do we need? I mean, this is something that is going from boutique to mainstream. And I suspect this might actually be the biggest part of the job, setting up the charging infrastructure. It's, it's a big part of it. What we think we need is about 500,000 charging stations across the country. And, you know, of course, at some point, and hopefully in the very near future, private industry takes over and makes this happen, because that's the way we're going to get to scale. But in order to prime the pump, we believe that we do need to have some public investment in charging infrastructure Uh, that will accelerate that target that the president laid out today. The president spoke more to that today on the South Lawn. We need automakers and other companies to keep investing in America. We need them not to take the benefits of our public investments and expand electric vehicles and battery manufacturing production abroad. We need you to deepen your partnership with the UAW, continue to pay good wages, support local communities across the country. That's why I'm so proud the UAW is standing here today as well. big part of the event today, Congressman, had to do with labor. He was speaking directly, the president speaking directly to the executives from these companies, as you just heard, asking them to keep it here, keep the battery manufacturing and other investments here in the U.S., but also to do it in partnership with the United Auto Workers. It was noted today, Congressman, that Tesla, for instance, was not there. How much of this has to do with organized labor specifically getting this work done? Well, I think it's a really important piece of it because if we are going to make this transition, we have to do it in a way that American workers are rewarded. I think one potential criticism of the past credit is that it tended to support higher income individuals purchasing higher value vehicles. The way we're rewriting the consumer incentives is to focus on domestic production of vehicles that are priced for middle-income earners in a way that essentially, small d, democratizes the electrification of our fleet of vehicles and makes them far more accessible to regular workers, but also, importantly, emphasizing domestic production. That works for the American worker and not just for a consumer who wants to buy a very high-priced vehicle. Mm-hmm. We're talking with Congressman Dan Kildee of Michigan. Uh, is this goal at the mercy of supply chains, Congressman? And I ask you that because we've been hearing a lot about shortages lately. You can't make all these EVs, cars and trucks without computer chips, without copper, nickel, and a lot of other materials that have been in short supply. There's no question. If we can't address the supply chain issues, we're going to fall short, uh, You know, whether it is 
these chips that we need to have or battery production, the essential supply chain has to be reshored here for the American manufacturing base. And, and, and frankly, um, we are paying, we're paying a pretty heavy price for the fact that we have not done that over the last many decades. So now we have a chance to retool manufacturing, retool automobile production, which is the heart of manufacturing, around a new design vehicle and a new supply chain. And if we miss the opportunity to make sure that that supply chain is an American supply chain, not only will we shortchange the American worker, but we put ourselves still in the position of being at the mercy of foreign supply chain. And look at what's happening right now with chips. We have vehicles that are being built with everything except the 100 or so microchips that are required to make those things go. And, of course, you can't sell a vehicle that won't go. And, and this, is, this is really a, a big part of the approach that we're trying to take with electrification. Yeah. Yeah, and you can't pay workers unless they're on the job, right? You've seen this happen in your state. GM and Ford both have recently had to suspend manufacturing production, you know, for a week here, a week there, because of items, specifically semiconductors, running into short supply. Are we overpromising, I guess, is the, the question I'm walking up to here, Congressman, with a goal that's so ambitious, yet we don't have the pieces to make these products? I think we can do it. And this is the thing I like about sort of the spirit of our country, which sometimes we lose track of. We set ambitious goals, and we organize ourselves to get there. We have the workforce. We have the demand, even on the consumer side. We have the demand. Uh, What we need to do is have a set of policies that is biased in the favor of American production. And that means tax policy, infrastructure policy, the whole thing. If we do this, and this is why we've been – so focused on making sure that this infrastructure legislation addresses all these moving parts. If we do this, nine years, ten years from now, when you know the president's goal is staring us in the face, I think we'll be able to look back and say we did the things we had to do to get there. I, I believe, you know, it may seem a little Pollyanna, but I, I still believe in the incredible capacity to produce in this country if we organize ourselves around a goal. And that's why I was so happy the president put an aggressive goal out there. I know you serve on Ways and Means. You're a, a, a deputy whip uh, in the House. Congressman, you mentioned infrastructure. Is the House going to seek major changes to the bipartisan plan when it comes next door? Well, we'll have to see what's in it, number one. And secondly, if we can get the other part, this reconciliation package, the sort of the budget side of this question, to include some of the financial aspects of what we're trying to do, then I think we may not need to make big changes. But, I've, you know, I've spoken to Chairman Peter DeFazio, who chairs our Transportation and Infrastructure Committee here. He's quite concerned with what the Senate did to the product that we sent over there. Um, we'll have to see what their final product looks like. I spoke to a couple of the senators today. They seem to believe they're going to be able to move this thing in the next couple of days. What it looks like is going to be... A- a big question for us as to whether we need to make big changes or if we can accept what they send us and then put the other pieces that we think are important into the reconciliation bill. Will you or, or other Democrats you work with in the House promise to vote against that bipartisan bill if, if you don't see what you want, or will you seek the changes in reconciliation? That'll be an opportunity 
or, or otherwise to set out the goals and the dollar signs you're looking for here? Yeah, I think my, my tendency is to embrace a compromise if it doesn't compromise my principles. And yeah. if it means we're making progress, that's what this is supposed to be about. So I'm more inclined to say, let's look at what they have. If we can put the other pieces together, expand on what they've done in the reconciliation process, and embrace the chance to be bipartisan, then we should do that. Congressman Dan Kildee, Democrat from Michigan, we thank you for spending some time with us on Bloomberg Radio. Coming up, we take a little ride with the panel. Bloomberg Politics contributors Jeannie Sheehan Zeno and Rick Davis have ideas on this. We'll discuss the politics of EVs. You know we'll bring up infrastructure later. All in the absence of Elon. Stay with us. We'll check markets and traffic coming up. I'm Joe Matthew. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. Thanks for spending part of your Thursday with us. Thanks for joining us on Bloomberg Sound On as we broadcast from the nation's capital. And to be fair, there were more cars than Jeeps on the lawn today at the White House. Several vehicles arrayed behind Joe Biden as I read on the terminal, including the Ford F-150 Lightning. I feel like I should do this properly with the South Lawn music. Here we go. There was a Ford F-150 Lightning, a Chevy Volt, make that Bolt, Jeep Wrangler Limited Rubicon, that's the one he drove, the GMC Hummer EV, and a Ford E Transit van. I think it would have been kind of funny if he drove the van. That's just me. But Joe Biden did take the vehicle for a spin around the driveway. And it looked like he had a pretty great time. Recalling the moment when Donald Trump got into the cab of the Mack truck there in the driveway and kind of mimed driving it. So imagine if you ran what is arguably the most important pioneering electric vehicle company the world has ever known. And you were not invited to today's big electric vehicle event at the White House. No music for you. I'm, of course, talking about Elon Musk, who tweets, quote, Yeah, seems odd Tesla wasn't invited. And you better believe White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki was asked about it during today's briefing. We, of course, welcome the efforts of all automakers who recognize the potential of an electric vehicle future and support efforts that will help reach the president's goal. And certainly Tesla is one of those companies. Uh, today, it's the three largest employers of the United Auto Workers and the UAW president who will stand with President Biden as he announces his ambitious new target. Ah, it was about the union, as reporters Continued. So it's not because Tesla is a non-union shop? Well, these are uh, the three largest employers of the United Auto Workers. So I'll let you draw your own conclusions. Let's draw your own conclusions. Well, White House economic advisor Heather Bruchet tweets, Gotta say, there are many things that bring me joy about being able to serve in Biden's White House. This is thing one, unions. And so we bring in the panel, Bloomberg Politics contributors Jeannie Sheehan Zeno and Rick Davis. Uh, Jeannie, was that an oversight or good politics for a president who embraces organized labor? I'm still listening to that music in my ear, <laughs> loving it, Joe. Um, you know, I thought 
the White House really missed a moment here to be inclusive. And so I think, you know, as Jen Psaki said, draw your own conclusions. And we have. Mm -hmm. Rick, I've been both. Uh, I've worked in a union and I have worked in non-union shops. I was largely the same guy in both instances. What kind of a message does it send to, to all of America? Well, I, I think certainly to the part of America that is right to work and uh, the vast majority of America, I might add, uh, it's basically an exclusive message. It's, is it really about uh, promoting uh, climate uh, security and, and EVs or is it about expanding the base of the unions who are predominantly Democratic workers? I think he really didn't do himself any uh, favors by uh, politicizing this event. Uh, makes total sense to want to have 50 percent of these vehicles by 2030 mm -hmm. uh, being um, uh, not fossil fuel. But like to, to basically say that the attendance is going to be drawn up by the United Auto Workers is is, I think, a real slap to workers who are not members of unions, but are doing yeoman's work, producing most of the EVs in this country. What do you think about the plan itself, Rick? Uh, you seem to approve of the goal. But a lot has to come behind this. Not only do you need the workers, and, well, we haven't had them in many cases uh, over the last year since COVID. Many think that will change. But we also need the supplies. And I was talking about this with the congressman. Building batteries uh, takes materials that we can't get right now. Building these EVs uh, requires semiconductors that are not available. Is, is it risky to put out a goal like this, knowing what the supply chains look like? Yeah, I do think that um, the congressman made a good point, right, is that the White House sets a standard. They're not the ones who are going to actually acquire any of these assets, uh, but they need to set a standard to say, hey, uh, we would like the corporate America who developed these programs to immediately start to put into high gear uh, what they can do to um, uh, meet my demands, my demands being I want to be 50% EVs by 2030. And as I understand it, he is also instructing, the president is also instructing the EPA to start forming rulemaking that will help facilitate that. So in addition to setting a standard, he's putting rules in place, but it's going to be up to corporate America to then take the investment to, as the congressmen say, create supply chains that are reshored. I love that, that phrase. It's my new favorite thing. <laughs> we want to be reshored. And, uh, and so uh, th that's still yet to be done. And leaving a bunch of the companies out of this conversation who are doing most of that reshoring uh, doesn't seem to be a consistent message. We only have 30 seconds, Jeannie. Uh, reshoring, though, is good politics for this president, right? He's calling on these companies to do the work here, not overseas. We may have lost Jeannie for now, but we will get her back. That's my promise to you. And Rick's going to stay here. As we turn next to the infrastructure debate, these are all connected, you know. Senators motivated by a new sense of urgency. Have you noticed? It's called recess. And we've got a score on the bill. Hard news that we'll talk about with Bloomberg government's Jack Fitzpatrick only here on Sound On. I'm Joe Matthew. This is Bloomberg. Top Thrill 
2 is like no other course. Two 420-foot vertical speedways, three launches. All right, let's talk strategy. Copy that, driver. Go for maximum acceleration off the start. Roger that. You've got a short straightaway to push from 0 to 74 on the first vertical speedway. And what about the rollback? Rollback will set you up for an explosive reverse climb 420 feet in the sky so you reach 0 Gs in total weightlessness. 420 feet of straight-up speed. Let's get it. Top Thrill 2, the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch Stratocoaster. Get your tickets at cedarpoint.com. Broadcasting live from our nation's capital, Bloomberg 99.1, to New York, Bloomberg 11.30, to San Francisco, Bloomberg 960, to the country, Sirius XM Channel 119, and around the globe, the Bloomberg Business App and BloombergRadio.com. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew. We have a score on infrastructure. The Congressional Budget Office has picked through all 2,700 pages. Someone had to read it. And we'll look at their analysis and what this bill would mean specifically for the deficit coming up with Bloomberg government's Jack Fitzpatrick. Welcome to Sound On for Thursday, where we now know the score. I mean that literally today, the score from the Congressional Budget Office on the bipartisan infrastructure bill moving through the Senate. One of the most important steps here on the road to this becoming law. That's why so many members said they couldn't say if they would vote for it until they could read it and until it was scored. Well, here we are. And a good time to talk with Bloomberg government's Jack Fitzpatrick, of course, no stranger to this microphone. Jack, welcome. What did we learn today from the CBO? Yeah, well, basically, we learned that this is not fully paid for. It's roughly halfway paid for, according to the way CBO scores it. There are going to be some arguments over that. More or less, uh, this is so ultimately, they say this is going to add $256 billion to the deficit. Uh, their best guess over the decade is this roughly increases spending overall by $300 billion or so. And then by their measures, it would raise about $50 billion in revenue. That gets to some of the dynamic scoring stuff that we've talked about before. It can be a little hard to project. I haven't heard anything about this really changing a bunch of people's minds. In fact, I would say this week, the bigger story so far in how this has played out in the Senate is that a lot of members have had enough chances to offer amendments on stuff, and they feel like they've had a a chance to sort of work on the bill. Uh, So we could end up seeing another procedural vote maybe later tonight. Uh, and it, it doesn't seem like this is off the tracks, even though this is, according to the CBO, only about halfway paid for. Uh, nothing has gone terribly wrong here on Capitol Hill, at least not yet. You mentioned the CBO's uh, methodology here, the way they calculate this, I presume, Jack, is different than what the White House and what Democrats uh, in the Senate are presenting. Is it apples and oranges or, or are we talking bad math on, on behalf of those who wrote the bill? Well, when you try to game out the effect of a bill over the course of a decade and you ask yourself what the spending effects would be on GDP and then what the GDP growth effects would be on tax revenues, yeah. um, you could you could argue everything is bad math. They're, so we were right to zero in on that last week, right? That was, that was uh, the yeah. ambiguous part of, of the pay-fors. Essentially, the growth that this bill would create is that would pay for itself, it, that's, that's a very difficult thing to quantify. It's extremely difficult to quantify. And generally, when you hear lawmakers saying the growth is going to pay for itself, that's not actually true. 
We heard that from Republicans on their tax bill. Yeah. We heard significant expectations for growth in this bill. You know, it's it might be good news that this says it's halfway paid for because it probably could have been worse. Some of the pay-fors <laughs> were somewhat gimmicky. Uh, and if you're looking for news on tax increases, yeah. real revenue raisers, you're probably going to have to wait until the next big bill that Democrats are working on, because this was one they really didn't want to get into difficult pay-fors. How about the money already spent, COVID relief funds and so forth? Does does CBO uh, acknowledge that as new money when it comes to this bill? Uh, I believe that goes into the pot of money that they consider reduced direct spending. So when I mentioned about $300 billion increase in spending, what they're actually talking is uh, talking about is $415 billion increase in spending in terms of what they want to do on infrastructure. And then they counted up a variety of measures that include that, uh, that reduce other spending by $110 billion. So, they, it, you know, it's a big enough bill so that when you try to say how much is this spending, it's, it's quite complicated. Mm-hmm. But, yes, that was also a significant pay for. Uh, and that that's a, sort of a separate debate among economists than the dynamic scoring. But, yes, that played into it. And that's one reason it's not a, an even bigger deficit adder over the, the course of the next decade. See, this is why we needed to talk to Jack today. Now, you mentioned a, a potential vote tonight. We've heard that. There were also reports out there today that you've likely seen, Jack, that senators are, are essentially – uh, discussing how they can move this whole thing uh, on a fast track and get to their August recess on time. I presume that would mean waiting on reconciliation uh, until they come back in September. But what might happen in the next couple of days? Well, I, I have not heard that they're actually going to wait on that first step on reconciliation. Now, keep in mind the reconciliation process is a two-step process. Sure. The plan that they have laid out is in the very near future, immediately after finishing infrastructure, do the first part where they put out the outline, the budget resolution that instructs committees on what to work on. They would vote on that. And then later in the year, they'd wrap up work on the bill. Uh, It sounds like they're still going to end up doing that. When you say leave on time, who knows what on time is? You know, they could end up holding a weekend vote on infrastructure and maybe early next week do reconciliation or at least the first half of it. But there's going to be a significant vote upcoming on the first part of the reconciliation stuff before they leave, I think. And then we get a couple of weeks to think about it. These guys can all go home, guys and gals, and they can be yelled at or cheered, I guess, by their constituents uh, when they get into town hall meetings. It sounds, though, like, Jack, based on what you said, the amendment process is wrapping or is it done? It's not entirely done. There are a couple more uh, fairly substantive ones that we know about. One would narrow down some of the requirements on cryptocurrency uh, in information revenue uh, information that they give to the IRS. Uh, that there were some provisions that uh, got the criticism, I believe, even by Jack Dorsey and some high-profile people who said that it was uh, overexpansive. Um, there's another one that would increase the flexibility of states to use their COVID money on infrastructure. Now, of course, that could affect the score as well. So we may see another score if they keep amending this. Uh, but it sounds like they're going to have a couple more amendments, including those. And then maybe tonight we could see that procedural vote before a final vote, uh, potentially over the weekend or maybe early next week. Sounds like nothing that would change uh, at least the headline numbers, though, or, or the overall thrust of the bill. Is that fair to say? Yeah, they're basically sticking with the same 
uh, general bill. They're making tweaks. This amendment process kind of allows senators to say, hey, I had a chance to get my word in, uh, and that can help them keep their 60 votes, or they had 67 originally. Um, There's nothing earth-shattering in these amendments. I would say basically the bill that you heard about is on track to uh, probably get 60 votes when they end up holding the vote. Great work, as always, from Bloomberg government's Jack Fitzpatrick with us on Bloomberg Sound On. Coming up, we hear from the panel a bit on infrastructure. We'll also talk today about what we kept hearing, COVID, mandates, and the reopening. Hear more of what the education secretary had to say about your child going back to school. I'm Joe Matthew, and this is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. The first day of school is fast approaching. It's only a couple weeks away in some areas. And, of course, the CDC is recommending that kids wear masks in class. Well, everyone, for that matter, wear masks in classrooms, which is not going over well in some states like Florida and Texas, whose governors are threatening to pull funding from schools considering mask mandates for kids. Enter Education Secretary Miguel Cardona today at the White House. I'm worried that decisions that are being made that are not putting students at the center and student health and safety at the center is going to be why schools may be disrupted. So we know what to do. You know, don't be the reason why schools are disrupted because of the the politicization of of this uh, effort to reopen schools. We know what works. Don't be the reason why schools are interrupted. Referring apparently to Texas Governor Greg Abbott, for starters, signed an executive order last week prohibiting local governments in that state from enacting vaccine requirements or mask mandates. The following day, Florida's governor, Ron DeSantis, signed an order allowing Florida's education officials to withhold money from school boards that impose mask mandates in violation of the new rules. And, of course, well, that's gotten into a whole back and forth with Governor Ron DeSantis and Joe Biden. After President Biden said, DeSantis, get out of the way. That was the term he used. And, boy, that started a whole Back and forth. Here's the governor of Florida speaking back to the president of the United States. If you are trying to lock people down, I am standing in your way and I'm standing for the people of Florida. So why don't you do your job? Why don't you get this border secure? And until you do that, I don't want to hear a blip about COVID from you. Thank you. Tough talk from the governor of Florida, who just a couple of weeks ago was sitting side by side with Joe Biden and the first lady, also the first lady of Florida, after that building came down in Surfside. But politics are back. White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki was asked about it. It is factual and it is a fact and data that you all are aware of that 25 percent of hospitalizations in the country are in Florida. It is also a fact that the governor has taken steps that are counter counter to public health recommendations. So we're here to state the facts. Frankly, our view is that this is too serious, deadly serious, to be doing partisan name calling. Uh, That's what we're not doing here. All the while, corporate America continues to move in the direction of masks and vaccines. BlackRock, you might have heard, and Wells Fargo are now pushing their return to office plans back a month to early October. BlackRock will allow workers to choose whether or not to come into their offices through the first. According to a memo, Wells Fargo will begin bringing back staffers, as I read on the Bloomberg, have been working remotely starting October 4th instead of the beginning of September. 
So here we go again with the world shifting slightly under our feet thanks to the virus. We're joined, of course, by the panel, Bloomberg Politics contributors Jeannie Shianzano and Rick Davis. Rick, this kind of drama doesn't have a lot to do with policy, but it does have a lot to do with the confidence people have going back to work or school. How important is this Absolutely, to I, get this kind of guidance from the I, education I, secretary? Yeah, I, th- I think it's actually um, a, a really bad thing that everybody is using this kind of political baiting uh, to talk about a public health crisis. I mean, uh, uh, families need confidence that their schools are going to reopen, that their children are going to be able to get to, to school in a safe way, and that they can go back to work because part of the work deficit that we're experiencing are parents who aren't sure whether their kids are actually going to be able to attend school this year. So I think throwing out these kind of political attacks is counterproductive to adding stability and understanding as to what to expect in the future, Uh, even though uh, the Delta virus is looking like it's pushing back some of the the start times for corporate America. Uh, I think everybody wants to see education start on time. And and I think same for teachers unions. you know, why in the world are they fighting a vaccine mandate? They were someone, some of the first people to be given vaccines in America because how important it is that, um, that we have uh, safe schools. And yet union after union, uh, especially the New York unions, the, uh, the teachers unions there, have pushed a- away from the idea that teachers ought to have a mandate to be vaccinated. So they want mandates for masks, but they don't want mandates for teachers to be vaccinated. I mean, I think everybody needs to sort of set aside all these political tools and start thinking about the children and the workforce. This is getting complicated, Jeannie. We've got Jeannie on the phone, and uh, I'll tell you, I am struck by constantly seeing private companies lean forward into this and the government kind of run to catch up. BlackRock, as I mentioned, Wells Fargo, the latest, pushing back plans. We've seen others kind of dictate the way forward when it comes to the way we conduct ourselves in the offices, how vaccine mandates are handled, all issues that the government has struggled with, Jeannie. Should should we just be following corporate America on this? That's right. And I think this is what gives people a, a sense that the government doesn't work. You know, one of my favorite but saddest phrases is, is, is this any way to run a government? And when you see Ron DeSantis, the governor of Florida, and Joe Biden, the president of the United States, going back and forth, and we know this is about politics, we have to think about the fact, look at Ron DeSantis, the Republican, is talking about federal government should not tell us what to do. Yet he is telling his own school districts what to do. And yet you see this. So, you know, this is a political game between him and Joe Biden. Everybody knows that. And that's what leaves people feeling frustrated and feeling like this has less to do with public health and much more to do with a political game. And that's why, you know, quite frankly, I wish the president wouldn't engage with Ron DeSantis and other governors like this. I think we need one voice from the federal level saying what the facts are. And the facts are this. Either you get vaccinated or you wear a mask. It's not that complicated, and they have to stop making it complicated, and the back and forth is doing them no good, and it's not doing the American public, more importantly, any good. 
Rick, Donald Trump uh, made it almost a full-time job, and, and it was a very effective job getting into back and forth like this, you know, finding a, an enemy that, that, that he could invest himself in. Is it, is it a different scenario for Joe Biden? A lot of people said there'd only be one Donald Trump. Is there a political liability here or a risk to getting into the, into the mud with Ron DeSantis? Yeah, don't don't take the bait. <laughs> um, uh, the promise of the Biden administration in the campaign and at the inaugural and subsequently was, I'm not going to be like Trump and I'm going to be science based. I'm going to uh, run the government in a way that uh, is differentiated from the previous four years. And yet, you know, Governor who, right? DeSantis takes a shot at him and he, you know, responds back, you know, with sort of this sarcastic um, yes. approach. And it's just not becoming the presidency. It's not becoming Joe Biden. It's not what he promised. And it's, and it's certainly not something that we want to see connected to uh, this massive public health crisis that, that we are still trying to get ourselves out of. And, and, and right now probably is the most important time in the last two years that we've had to really need leadership that's science-based and is not political. We're talking with Rick and Jeannie, our political panel here on Bloomberg Sound On. And I have to ask you both uh, while we're together about infrastructure. We got the score today from the Congressional Budget Office. And I dug into this a little bit earlier in the hour with Jack Fitzpatrick. It's likely uh, possible, if not likely, that we get a vote tonight, a procedural vote that will go a long way to moving this bill ahead. $256 billion added to the federal budget. Jeannie, we understand that, that basically this isn't as paid for as we thought it was. Is that a problem or is this thing flying down the road to becoming law? I think it is flying down the road as these things fly, which is fairly slowly, to becoming law. And I think it will pass the Senate. I do think the CBO report that you just spoke with Jack about and the idea that this is going to add $256 billion to the deficit over this period of time is going to add fuel to Republicans who are opposed to the bill. But I don't think it will stop passage of the bill. But I do think it adds, you know, sort of another argument for Republicans and potentially others to say that when they negotiated this bill out, they were not forthcoming about the issue of pays pay for it. And that is a really big issue. On the other side, of course, we desperately need this infrastructure bill. We need probably more than is in this bill, but we need this to invest in the economy of the United States if we're going to move forward as a nation and if we're going to compete with the likes of China. So this amount of increase in the deficit over this period of time is nothing in terms of what this will give back to us if and when it's passed. But I do think politically it will give some fuel for Republicans who are opposed to the bill to begin with to say this is why they're not going to support it. And this will come back as we think about the issue of the debt seal, the debt ceiling, which mm-hmm. is another issue that Congress is struggling with. Well, that's for sure. We're almost out of time, Rick. But if you were a Republican, yes, vote yesterday. Does this change your mind seeing the score? It doesn't. I want to take credit for building roads and bridges in my state and nothing the CBO is going to tell me today <laughs> is going to change my mind that this is good politics back home. Rick Davis, Jeannie Sheehan-Zeno, our political panel. I'm Joe Matthew in Washington. In another fascinating hour, the fastest hour in politics. I'll meet you back here tomorrow live from Washington. I'm Joe Matthew. This is Bloomberg.
Top Thrill 2 is like no other course. Two 420-foot vertical speedways, three launches. All right, let's talk strategy. Copy that, driver. Go for maximum acceleration off the start. Roger that. You've got a short straightaway to push from 0 to 74 on the first vertical speedway. And what about the rollback? Rollback will set you up for an explosive reverse climb 420 feet in the sky so you reach 0 Gs in total weightlessness. 420 feet of straight-up speed. Let's get it. Top Thrill 2, the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch Stratocoaster. Get your tickets at cedarpoint.com. The Hartford understands protecting your business with the proper insurance can be a challenge. The Hartford team can provide coverage to suit your industry. The Hartford empowers mid- to large-size companies like yours to help manage risk, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. Let the Hartford help protect what's unique about your business. Learn how at thehartford.com.